from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. F. F. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Now don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you mean, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Um, my skin... Is not your costume. Hey, I saw you with Mabel the other night. Yeah, she's the gal I love. Baby, baby. Oh, baby, baby, baby. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. I'm Irena Liddell, and I am cosplaying Steamy Leia today. Ooh, Steamy Leia. Yes. Cosplay, for those of you who haven't kept up with geek culture as closely as you meant to is the term for when fans dress up as their favorite characters from comic books and fantasy movies and then go out in public to gatherings like Comic-Con. This hour of Studio 360 is all about various sorts of fans, but cosplay is a kind of extreme fandom that used to be considered so over-the-top that even comic book geeks made fun of their fellow geeks who did it. Then, social media came along. I found, what's your name? Sub-Zero. What does your mom call you? Uh, Dan. Cosplayers started posting videos of themselves in all their spandex-clad, cape-wearing splendor. And these videos helped normalize cosplay, even made it seem kind of cool. Let your freak flag fly. But some cosplayers, ones whose skin isn't Caucasian pink, are still required to justify themselves. My friend Eric Malinsky has a podcast about sci-fi and fantasy called Imaginary Worlds, and he brought us their story. Every year during San Diego Comic-Con or New York Comic-Con, lots of websites will post slideshows of their favorite costumes. One thing that I've noticed is that those images rarely reflect the actual diversity that I see in the convention floor. What I see at Comic-Cons, and rarely in slideshows, are black cosplayers dressed as characters that are not traditionally depicted as black. So I sat down with Brittany K. Williams and another cosplayer who goes by the name Suki. And before I could even start, they were asking each other questions. If you have really good, like, bendable, like, Eva foam, or even if you use, like, Instamorph, you can make the star yeah. and the circular part, and if you have, yeah. like, a good amount of warbler, then that's perfectly fine. The, the staff part yeah. can be, like, a dowel or, like a, like, a piece of, like, PVC pipe. Okay, I, I really have no idea what they're talking about. But I do know that they're talking about the challenge of taking two-dimensional cartoon characters or video game characters and figuring out how to look like them in real life. And they're not Hollywood costume designers. The materials have to be affordable but look fantastic. Now, of course, those are practical challenges that every cosplayer faces. But black cosplayers have to deal with a lot more. My first annoy, dumb, annoying comment was said in um, out of love, and I get, I feel like that made it worse. So or, much worse. Yeah, like they, or she like they she mean meant it. She it, meant but... it with love, and it was um, when the first time I was prepping to do cosplay and uh, or like for a convention that I was prepping to do it, and I'm I'd made my list of characters that I wanted to be, and I was like, oh, I could be this, and I could be this, and I could be this, and I could be this. My friend who was white, she she was like, well, you can't be those characters, and I was like, why can't I be those characters? She was like. They're not black. You could be these characters. And she named, like, 
three characters from shows that I did not watch who happen to be black. And like one is like, you could be Anthony from Utena. And I was like, I don't I don't watch that show. I'm Sailor Moon. I'm not. And if I'm going to be a character from Utena, I'm going to be Utena. I'm going to be the lead. I'm not going to be a secondary character. Like, I don't, that's not what I do. Yeah, it's almost like assuming that you're only going to identify with, with that one, yeah, that one minority th- character. Yeah. And it's like, that's not how no. it works. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because they're usually like background characters. If they're not the secondary character, then they're like tertiary yeah, they're like, characters. Like the sidekick or like, something. No, I'm the lead. We, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. We Did you not get that? No, that's not what we do here. And, yeah. it was, and it's so funny you say that because it's just like I cosplayed Raven from mm-hmm. Teen Titans. And it's just like I've actually had someone go, oh, why don't you just be Bumblebee? By the way, Teen Titans is a DC comic book series. Bumblebee is one of the black characters. And I'm just like, um, as much as as much butt as Bumblebee kicks, I love Raven. But I'm right. just and somebody's just like, um, but Raven's white. I'm like, first of all, no, she's not. She's not even human. She's Azerathian and she is half demon. She her and her skin is gray. So your argument is fully invalid. Here is a married couple that cosplays together, Harry and Gina Crossland. Sometimes we don't go to the movies to actually see the movies. We go to the movies to get the cosplay ideas. You know, like, that movie sucked, but the costume was awesome. <laughs> a few years ago, Harry was at Baltimore Comic Con talking with his friends Trent and Mike. And one of them said he should dress up as Bishop, a black X-Men character who was tall with dreadlocks, just like Harry. Trent was really hung up on the idea. He said, dude, you got the height, you got the size, you should do it. I said, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I think about it. So I thought about it. And I think maybe about two or three weeks later, I showed Gina the idea. Gina liked it and said, okay, well, let's run with it. Let's let's just see what happens. Say either it'll be a big hit or nobody will care because Bishop is a character right now that you're rarely seeing in the comic books. So when Harry finally debuted his Bishop costume, it was a big hit. But Harry is more excited about his Superman costume, which has Kryptonian armor, like in the movie Man of Steel. The problem is... And this is this is happening, you know, amongst my own folk as well. They're, they're, you know, when they see us doing these these different spins, you know, they've asked us like, OK, well, are you the universe 24 version of Superman? Meaning, are you from an alternative universe? Are you are you the black version of Superman? Are you this version? Are you that version? And so on and so on and so forth. And I'm like, no, I'm just Superman. And, you know, there have been times I've actually gotten into debates with people who are like, well, you know, and, and they didn't want to come out and say it and say, well, you know, Superman is white. You know, they try to say, well, you know, if you did this or if you added this to your army, you could be that version. I'm like, I don't want to be that version. I'm the version that you see in front of you. Talking with these cosplayers, I noticed a few themes coming up. First, a desire to come up with your own spin on a classic character that stands out, maybe says something. Second, a pride in their craftsmanship and wanting to be recognized for that. And third, a deep yearning for community. That's why Brittany writes for the website Black Nerd Problems. So, haha, Black Nerd Problems is uh, a culture website. Uh, and I like to say that we, we report on the convergence between nerd culture and black culture. Suki often wondered where those cultures overlapped when she was growing up in Coney Island. Not for nothing, like, when people think of Coney Island, they automatically think of the mermaid parade, like, the rides, the the hot dog eating contest, the boardwalk and the beach don't ever go in the water. But out of the, like, out of all the people that I've met there, I've probably met three or four other people that were into, like, 
nerd that were into like nerd culture and into cosplay. And it's just like when I'm walking around in cosplay, because I remember one time for New York City Pride, I actually cosplayed as Rainbow Dash. Because why the hell not? Wait, what's Rainbow Dash? <laughs> From My Little Pony. Ah. Oh. Friendship is Magic. Yes, that shows good. So. <laughs> You're just like, by the way, friendship is magic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm walking through the neighborhood and I've had like so many people staring at me and one of them like was my neighbor and they're all looking at me like, what the hell does she have on? <laughs> yeah. They look at me like with this stereotype because like I've actually gotten this all the time growing up like, yo, you're black. Why are you like, why are you doing all this quote unquote white people stuff? So again, that is why I was so surprised how diverse the fan base is at Comic-Cons, because the slideshows don't often reflect that. Because the thing is, when you have other people out there that have never cosplayed, they have never been to a comic convention, and they want to go, especially when they are of a a minority, when they're people that are nervous about their body type, when they see the video, and all they see on the videos are young, skinny people. Regardless of what color you are, young and skinny, and and, and that's all you see, then that's going to make you less want to go out and cosplay. This issue came to the fore a few years ago when a cosplayer named Shaka Cumberbatch came up with the hashtag 28 Days of Black Cosplay, which coincided with Black History Month. Oh, I was all on it. (laughs) I, I, I thought it was the best thing ever. Sookie felt the same way. She started a revolution. Yeah. When you think about it, she started one of the nerdiest, geekiest, artiest, cosplayest revolutions in the black community. And it's gone so far yeah. off the grid. And it's actually gone worldwide because there are cosplayers not just in the States. Uh, there are black cosplayers in Canada, black cosplayers in the United Kingdom, black cosplayers in the Netherlands. And it's just so, so beautiful to look at. It's like a bet signal. We can we call out to each other. Yes. Like, say, like, you're someone in the middle of, like, the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin. And you're like, I kind of want to do cosplay, but I don't know what to do. I don't know. Do black people even do this? I don't know. Then just hit the look, hashtag. There you go. They've had to fight larger battles, too. A shocking number of white cosplayers have taken to wearing blackface when dressing as characters that are traditionally black, like Storm from X-Men or Michonne from The Walking Dead. When you decide that, okay, I'm going to do Storm or I'm going to do Michonne from Walking Dead and I got everything else right, I even got the wig, but now I'm going to color my skin, that's no. And widen my nose. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a young lady in Germany who did that and who decided she wanted to get a prosthetic for her nose. Because I feel like this, um, my skin is not your costume. You know, for as many people that actually want to die on that hill and defend the practice of blackface, I tell them, I say, well, I do Superman. How would you guys feel if I went out and I painted my skin to, to appear white and then got a spit curl? The most common argument they get from blackface cosplayers is that other cosplayers put on green makeup to play the Hulk or red makeup to be Hellboy. You like you can put on green makeup. Does that make it racist? Is that weird? Like if I put and on I'd green like makeup, know, or if I put I on like to, blue makeup, or and it's I like no, it's not I the same. I need you to go on Facebook right now and go through your friends list and see which one of them actually has green skin that was born of this planet. Right. That's literally <laughs> like, what no. I tell them. Which one of the, yeah. your Facebook friends has green skin or has yeah. purple skin? I'd like to meet them right now and ask them 
if they think it's racist. And if you right. can't find me not one person with green skin or purple skin or blue skin, then I need you to shut all the way up. <laughs> <laughs> but they are impressed when they see non-black cosplayers play black characters without blackface. Like, like for instance, um, I saw this Asian lady do Michonne at Baltimore Comic Con. It was, it was spot on. Mm-hmm. Great. I was like, and I told her, I, I pulled her aside. I said, ma'am, thank you so much. <laughs> Suki once saw a white cosplayer dressed as Mike Tyson. He was bald. He had the face tattoo and everything and was and did a great job. And like when somebody was like, you have the great Mike Tyson cosplay, he's like the guy said himself. Yeah, I don't understand why people have the blackface in order for it to be accurate. Having to constantly referee these issues can be exhausting. That's not why they went into cosplay. They got into this hobby for the same reason everyone else did. Because it's fun. I feel like a celebrity for a day. Even my father who came to Baltimore once, he said, y'all like a celebrities. People just come up to you and want to take a picture. I said, yeah, it feels good, don't it? All the time. <laughs> a version of this story appeared on Eric Malinsky's excellent podcast, Imaginary Worlds. The term cosplay was coined in 1984 by a Japanese guy named Nobuyuki Takahashi. Because before cosplay became a thing in America, it was a cornerstone of anime fandom in Japan. That fandom is something that Roland Keltz is so steeped in he wrote a book about it. Roland's mom is Japanese, and although he grew up mainly in the U.S., he spent lots of time in Japan. And my friends were kind of envious that I had these wild masks and manga from this faraway country that was so much wilder than Spider-Man. On those trips with his mom, he fell in love with geek culture in Tokyo, which he told me about in Tokyo when we were both there in 2008. Because Tokyo was so safe, she would just let me run. You know, she would be seeing her former classmates and old buddies, and I would just be running through this amazing city with all this color and light and all these fantastic electronic stores. Wow. And I loved all the synthesizers in the 80s. Yeah. So, you know, I'd, I'd go home with At these the dawn of the synthesizers. Exactly, yeah, right. right. So it was absolutely thrilling for me. Um, and it was kind of like uh, my little secret. Where are we? Where, where have you brought me? We're now in Akihabara, which is more or less the ground zero of Japanese pop culture and electronics, you know, the the hippest anime and manga are being sold, in some cases produced, and at the same time you can find the latest cell phone gadget. So it's, uh, it's, it's ground zero also for otaku culture, the culture of Japanese hyper-obsessive geeks. The actual concept of otaku uh, is, is from an essay that was written in, I think, the early 1980s. Oh, is that right? Yes. And... Otaku actually roughly translates as, hello, sir. And the reason it was used for these geeks is that they rarely made eye contact with each other, but they would see each other in the same stores and locations. So um, because they were uh, so shy, they wouldn't say each other's names. They would more or less kind of look away but say, hello, sir, acknowledging you know, the presence of the other, but not really uh, having a conversation. Should we walk? 
So, the, at first glance, what I would call this is a toy store. Yeah, yeah, you'd think. But, but these are people who take toys very, very seriously. Well, it's so a toy store with no one under probably 21 in the place. Right, exactly. Yes, here you can actually see otaku types mm-hmm. <laughs> firsthand. Is, is it equivalent to nerd? Is, the, is there a close English equivalent? You know, the meaning in America is very, very different. It's uh-huh. a point of pride. I'm uh-huh. an otaku. It means uh-huh. I'm a... I'm an obsessed fan. In Japan, the suggestion is I can't actually deal with other people. So, you know, I love these figurines of schoolgirls, but I could never talk to an actual schoolgirl. So it's not a point of pride, necessarily. So these are all sort of appurtenances of your private, reclusive, freak fantasy life. Right, exactly, exactly. Yet here they all are, hundreds, thousands of them gathered on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. This really is... Nerd's Paradise. Yeah, it is. <laughs> what? This is cool. Yeah. This is like dollhouse furniture yeah, from like every era imaginable, like the 40s, the yeah. 50s. You see, seeing these dolls, I would expect to see this place full of girls, but I have yet to see them. Now, this is called Dolphy, which is a mix of doll and figurine. Oh, that's awesome. So you can buy like dozens of different shapes and figures for every piece of the doll that you create yourself. That's right. An interactive doll fetish. That's amazing. Well, if you look over there, you can see all the varieties of wigs. This is awesome. There are your eyeballs. An entire uh, vitrine devoted to eyeballs. We should get a picture of that. Of the eyeball case, yes. So now I see, here's the violin carrying cases. That's yes. interesting. It makes me now, re- I, as I've seen girls carrying violin cases on the subway, I thought, oh, there's much the classical music tradition you is so alive and well. Yes. <laughs> Silly, Kurt. <laughs> so let's, let's head out to the street and get some fresh air. Yes, I badly need some fresh air. Okay. So we're now a little bit away from where we were looking at all the figurines and cards and collectibles and electronics before. What, what happened at this intersection in June? About 12.30 in the afternoon, this street was filled with pedestrians. And uh, Tomohiro Kato, a 25-year-old uh, laborer, drove uh, his rented truck right through this intersection and uh, ran over three people who died. He jumped out of his truck and started indiscriminately stabbing uh, pedestrians on the side streets. And in all, he killed seven people uh, and stabbed something close to 14 or 15. And it was a shock that it happened right here in the center of the kind of colorful, wacky world of Japanese popular culture. So as these murders happened, was, was he apprehended immediately? Did people tackle him? What happened? No. In fact, uh, one of the shocks was that the... the Police. In fact, he he actually killed a policeman. One of the one of the dead was a, a police officer who approached him and tried to calm him down. You know, this is not a gun culture, so people here were just stunned. But at the time, several pedestrians were standing at this very intersection, holding up their cell phones, and some of them were actually streaming the footage onto the internet. So you could actually watch in real time on your computer as these bodies lay bleeding in the street. And this outcry went up in Japan. Why did these people who were holding their cell phones not bother to help? And again, that sort of revealed the darker side of this hyper 
advanced technological culture and the degree to which a virtual world can explode. That was Roland Kelt for a story we first aired in 2008. Coming up, Jesus Christ, super fan? I hate the 70s. I also have a lot of problems with Christianity. However, when the two meet, it works out for me for some reason. An unlikely lifelong obsession with a certain rock opera. That's ahead in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. This hour in Studio 360, when fans attack. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. Sure, there had been teens screaming for Frank Sinatra 20 years earlier and for Elvis in the 1950s. But Beatlemania was more, a couple orders of magnitude bigger and crazier. And that kind of madness of crowds is not a thing of the past. A few years ago, when a documentary about Justin Bieber came out, we asked Paul Vandekar to compare Bieber's fans to the group that made all those girls my older sister's age swoon. If you want to talk to some of the kids who went berserk over the Beatles, the first-generation Beatle maniacs, you can find some at the B.B. King Blues Club in Times Square. That's where a Beatles tribute band called Strawberry Fields plays a brunch gig on Saturdays. Well, she was just 17, you know. These are the grandmothers and grandfathers who watched that Ed Sullivan Show broadcast and will never forget it. They came out and introduced the Beatles. And from that minute, the screaming started. And the bouncing up and down. And the Beatles were wearing the suits and the boots and that adorable hair. The screaming was so loud and everybody else was screaming, so I I stood up on the chair and screamed for the rest of the show. Girls screaming for them at the airport, girls breaking through the police lines at their hotel, girls chasing their car down the street. Carrying the album around, pressed against my chest, and like every three minutes I would give Paul a kiss and tell him (laughs) I loved him. I mean, I loved their music, but I wasn't screaming, jumping up and down, anything like that until I saw the show. And the girls were just absolutely out of their minds. And my my very dear friend Vicky called me and said, which one do you love? Which one do you love? And I'm like, oh, I really haven't thought about it. (laughs) So it was that kind of thing, and it became infectious. We had to declare our favorite Beatle immediately, and you had to have loyalty to that Beatle. My favorite Beatle was Ringo. He didn't really sing like the rest of them, so I always went for the guy that's always in the background. After the Ed Sullivan Show appearance, Newsweek said musically they are a near disaster, guitars and drums slamming out a merciless beat. Their lyrics, punctuated by nutty shouts of yeah, 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 are a catastrophe, a preposterous farrago of Valentine card romantic sentiments. Parents hoped that the Beatles' star would fade like a dozen boy bands before them, but kids weren't paying attention to the squares. The melodies and the words were so singable. You know, so we we would literally get together on the playground and sing the songs, the harmonies, and the, the sort of the drum beat. 
I was crazy about them. As I said, at this stage of my life, I can't imagine being that insane about something. I can't believe it's happened to me. Across the street from the brunch gig, there's a movie theater. Earlier this winter, a new documentary opened there called Justin Bieber's Believe. The kids lined up to go in are known as Beliebers. I'm 13. I've loved Justin since 2009. My entire just, life, whole life dedicated. It's just, it's all you it's all I think about. It's not, I and, brought uh, paper bags to breathe in because sometimes yeah. it's hard. Or I brought a box of we tissues and I was handing them to people because people were crying. On a scale of 1 to 10... Where would you place yourselves as Justin Bieber fans? Ten thousand. I don't have a number in there. <laughs> it's like, it's like <laughs> broke my scale. <laughs> it's just infinite, like infinite oh, times infinite amounts of infinity. Oh, in Justin Bieber's Believe, there's footage of fans screaming for Justin, intercut with black and white footage of girls screaming for the Beatles. I love how they're comparing that to him because he is just like them and he's so talented just like them and I think the fans were just as dedicated to him as they were to them and I, it's, it's a good thing to be compared to. In 1964, Paul and John were 22, 24. Justin Bieber is 19 and he hit a big five years ago. It all stemmed off from my fans showing up at each radio station. My fans posting like video responses before I was signed. It all started from the fans, so it's got to end up with the fans. And I don't think any of his bad boy outbursts are going to bother these fans. When your family just annoys you, and you turn to Justin, and his beautiful angelic voice, you know, just calms you down. This kid really does know what's getting to us. Baby, baby, oh, baby, baby, baby. Well, be careful. Be careful. The first few Beatle records were, yeah, 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 and love me, do, love me, do, I love you, you know, be true and all that. No different. John Corba plays George Harrison in Strawberry Fields, the tribute band. Every generation needs to have something they can call their own. We were calling rock and roll our own when our parents came up on Big Band. It's just the quality of the music that we were lucky enough to grow up to, you know, was really exceptional. Justin Bieber, who knows? I mean, I do know they're not going to be singing his songs in 20 or 30 years. I mean, my mother screamed for Frank Sinatra, and she did. To me, it's hormonal, genetic, and just a function of mass culture. A lot of people have actually been telling me lately, like, oh, when you get older, you're going to look back at this and be like, oh, you're so stupid for doing all of this stuff for a kid. Like, no, they don't realize that. When I grow up and I'm older, I'm going to look back at all of this. I'm going to be like, I love the kid. I still love the kid. And I'm always going to be there for him. And I'm glad that I stuck through everything because it was so worth it. He's just amazing. It's impossible for me to stop loving him. I will love him till I'm 80 years old. I will love love him forever. I'll make my kids love him. My great-grandchildren. We're all going to love him together. No, I think we're just going to be Beatles fans forever. 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 I'm going to have a play when I'm laid out in that little old coffin. and I'm going to have Beatles music playing in the background. (laughs) 
<laughs> no hymns, just no hymns, no just, just, just the Beatles. Yeah, and Revolver especially. Revolver. That's my favorite album. <laughs> That was Paul Vanderkar with the story we first aired in 2012. But the comparisons between Bieber and the Beatles persist, as TMZ discovered when it recently accosted Ringo Starr. Hey, real quick, let me ask you one question. I'll leave you alone. If the Beatles and Justin Bieber were touring together during their prime, who would open? Justin. Justin. Yeah, Beatles all the way, right? All the way. He's a clown. I want you to leave my good friend Ringo alone. John Lennon famously said that his rock band was more popular than Jesus. Not long after that, as if to up the ante in 1970, a musical made the case that Jesus could rock. And when that Broadway musical was turned into a movie, it found one of its biggest fans in a young kid in New England. My name's Nick Capodice. I live in Concord, New Hampshire. And my guilty pleasure is Jesus Christ Superstar, the movie. It's the telling of the last days of Christ up into the crucifixion. And it's really hokey. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you, what have you sacrificed? I first watched this movie when I was 10. I was not a popular boy in the sixth grade. First of all, musicals are not cool when you're a 10-year-old kid in Pentecook, New Hampshire. Uh, rock operas are especially not cool. And contrary to what I learned uh, as a kid, Jesus is not way cool. This bread could be my body. Uh, it's roundly and soundly mocked as a film. Ted Neely, who played Jesus Christ, won an award for uh, worst movie Jesus of the year. This is my body you eat. Remember me when you eat and drink. Also, it's, it's difficult to understand because there is no dialogue. When it comes to musicals, usually you have like some exposition, like, hey, I saw you with Mabel the other night. Yeah, she's the gal I love. And some, you know, but in Jesus Christ Superstar, it's just constant song from beginning to end. Not a single spoken line. He's just another scripture thumping hack from Galilee. The difference is they call him king. The difference frightens me. What about the Romans? It's so 70s. It personifies the 1970s. You know, the idea of long hair, sort of anti-establishment, that's very much the story of Jesus, and it's very much the story of the 70s. And I hate the 70s. I also have a lot of problems with Christianity. However, when the two meet in Jesus Christ Superstar, it works out for me for some reason. Christ, you know I love you. Did you see our way? Oh, the music is, is really good. And I know it was based on a stage production that came out a couple years earlier. And it was Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice did it together. Nazareth, your famous son, should have stayed a great unknown. Like his father, carving wood, he'd have made good. It's got sort of rockin' 70s piano throughout. 
It's got some love ballads in there, and it's got some real catchy stuff. Even though, the, yeah, I'm a self-proclaimed atheist, I still believe in the story of Jesus. You know, he was a real guy, had some great ideas. I know the story of the Bible is supposed to be, some say, the greatest story ever told. I always found the story of the Bible dreadfully boring. And when I tried to talk to people about it, there were religious scholars and there were other people. Nobody came close to telling the story as simply and poetically as they did in the movie Jesus Christ Superstar. It's got a great love between two men. Judas and Jesus are best friends who are kind of coming up against each other all the time. Listen, Jesus, I don't like what I see. All I ask is that you listen to me. And remember, I've been your right-hand man all along. Judas isn't the sniveling little man in the, you know, the Last Supper who's behind Jesus' shoulder, who's <laughs> willing to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Judas is your eyes for the whole movie, and he's a very sympathetic character. I would even call him an antagonist. And so this character who's been portrayed as a traitor really is just a guy who loves his friend dearly. You have set them all on fire. They think they found the new messiah. And they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong. And then we got Mary Magdalene thrown in the mix. And I'm not even going to pretend to address the issue of who she was in the Bible, because, you know, you can get in a lot of hot water for that. But I'm given to understand it's sort of intimated that Mary and Jesus were familiar. They loved each other, that's for sure. And, uh smash hit from Mary Magdalene is I don't know how to love him I don't know how to love him what to do how to move him she's a prostitute in the movie she doesn't know how to love him because maybe the way that he is loved is not the way she's done it and I've had so many she says, and I've had, I've loved so many men before. In very many ways, he's just one more. But there's something funny about this son of a carpenter from Nazareth. I love him so. So my favorite scene, bar none, in the movie is the track Superstar. And this is a scene just after Jesus has been flogged lashed 39 times by one of Pontius Pilate's lackeys. And he turns around slowly at this moment, and he suddenly is no longer caked in blood, and he's dressed in a beautiful white robe, and he's holding his arms out in that classic Jesus pose. You know the one? You know what I'm talking about. Like the, the Jesus pose. And then he raises his eyes to the heavens, and he sees, oh, this is so good. Oh, this is so good. A crane and a beautiful flash of light at the top of the crane. And Judas Iscariot is dressed in a beautiful white suede suit. He's coming down on a crane. Mm, every time I look at you, I don't understand Why you let the things you did get so out of hand You'd have managed better if you'd had it planned 
Now why'd you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you, what have you said? I think I've seen this movie, I must have seen this movie um, bumping up over 400 times. I have played all the roles in my living room. Uh, every year my friends used to have a Jesus Christ Superstar party on Easter. And I would come dressed up as a different character each time. Usually one of the lesser apostles. I have never dressed up as Jesus. I'll do Judas, I'll do Herod, I'll do Mary. No, you never dress up as Jesus. That's the one role I don't do. That was Nick Capodice. So what about you? What's the movie or building or novel or song or cultural trend or any bit of art or entertainment that you love even though it's really unpopular or unfashionable? Record a 30-second voice memo on your phone explaining what it is and the gist of why you love it and send that to studio360 at wnyc.org. We want to put you and your Guilty Pleasure Manifesto on the air. As we consider the idea of fandom this week, we are wondering about an aspect of your fandom, what you like podcast-wise. So please help us by filling out an online survey. It'll take five minutes max, and it's anonymous. You can do it at wnyc.podcastingsurvey.com, and we'll be grateful. Still ahead, how a teenager in Iowa was saved. It felt like golden sunshine coming out of this radiant person and filling you with so much joy. The Altar of Whitney Houston. That's coming up in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. This week's show is all about fans and fandom. And speaking of that, you don't always remember exactly when you became a fan of a certain thing. Unless you see or hear it at just the right time and it completely gobsmacks you. Often that happens in adolescence. Like, for instance, when I was a kid and first read Hunter Thompson on his trip to Las Vegas and first saw Terrence Malick's movie Badlands. And something like that is what happened to Shara Warden. She's a musician who performs as My Brightest Diamond, and she grew up in a devout Pentecostal family. My junior year of high school, we moved to Iowa, and it was really quite devastating. I was leaving behind a boyfriend that I really, really, really loved. It was the early 90s. I remember hearing Whitney Houston on the radio all the time, driving to school, driving to church, driving to see your friends. I Will Always Love You kind of comforted me as we moved. If I should stay Whitney's voice had this beautiful range and the timbre was so special. I don't know how to describe it other than saying it sounds human. <laughs> so I'll go, but I know 
I'll think of you every step of the way. It felt like golden sunshine coming out of this radiant person and filling you with so much joy. And I. I mean, the pleasure of her voice, the pleasure of singing, well, that's something that I want to experience for myself. So when I went to college, I started singing in a cover band, and I asked the guys if they would consider playing I Have Nothing, one of my new favorite Whitney songs. I had written out the lyrics, because back in the day we didn't have the internet. <laughs> so I would record the song off of the radio on a cassette tape, and then you would play it back over and over and over and over and over again to write the lyrics out. It was a Christian cover band, and so I had to figure out a way to change the lyrics that would get them to let me do this song so that they could consider it a worship song. I was trying to change it to, I have nothing, nothing without, you know, as though it was to Christ to turn this love song into a love song to Jesus. <laughs> but the guys in the band refused to learn it. And they kind of just made fun of me. It was so angering that I was determined to learn how to play my own songs. I wasn't going to have someone else be in charge of what I wanted to do musically. And from that point, I was like, damn it, I'm going to learn how to play guitar. Fingers bled. I played for hours and hours and hours, and I knew I wanted to do music with my life. Now I'm a composer, singer, and a songwriter for the band My Brightest Diamond, and I have composed an opera. And in this piece, there is the character love, virtue, death, time, and hope. So my character, Hope, is always taking out her feather pen and writing these fan letters to famous singers and asking, do you feel lonely? But it isn't until everything kind of falls apart that she calls to Whitney as the kind of pinnacle priestess of the divine answer. Does the soul remain after the body dies? Dear Whitney Houston, does the soul remain after the body dies? Does it? Does it? Does it? And she's shaking. Yours. When you sing, you're doing this very simple thing that's the breath 
we're trying to get to this basic thing of humanity. What does it mean to be here, to be in this body, to connect to each other? Here's sound. I'm vibrating it out, and the sound touches your body, and you have a physical reaction from this vibration that came from my being. It's so basic. Singing is so basic. I think as a singer, I find myself going back to Whitney's performances and thinking about the transparency in the way that she sang a kind of openness. There's a way that you feel like you're having access to her soul in a direct way. For me as a singer, the journey of my life has been years and years and years of it's okay, be more transparent, be more transparent, let yourself be seen, don't hide. Shara Warden is the songwriter and lead singer for the band My Brightest Diamond. Muj Zaidi produced that story. And that's it for this week's episode. Almost. Since we've just done this show on fandom, I'm using this opportunity to say that I am a huge fan of Sarah Jones. I'm also her friend. She is a playwright and actor who won a Tony for a show called Bridge and Tunnel. In that play, which was the first time I'd ever seen her do anything, she displayed a really uncanny ability to depict characters whose ages and ethnicities and genders are all over the map. Now Sarah and her characters are at work on a new project, hosting a podcast called Playdate with Sarah Jones. Hello, my name is Serene, and I am the star of a new podcast from PRI and Sarah Jones. Yeah, totally don't mean to interrupt, but like, my name is Bella, and actually this is my podcast. I hate to disagree, ladies, but my name is Lorraine, and this happens to be my podcast, or whatever you call it. Okay, everyone, let's be clear. The name of our podcast is actually Playdate with Sarah Jones. That's me. And the podcast is called Playdate because I get to play with some of my favorite people. Yeah, like the time India Ari, the Grammy-winning singer and songwriter, came over, she was like amazing, you guys. Especially for me, like as a feminist, I totally loved when she like talked about the roots of her music. People say you teach what you most need to learn. I didn't grow up thinking I was a beautiful flower. That's what made me the person who wanted to write these songs. My name is Vashid, you know what I'm saying? I'm the first dude y'all hearing from. Maybe I didn't expect that. But we like to keep it real interesting here on Playdate. Like, for example, I ain't know my girl Bella right here. She don't like to be called a millennial, even though she is one. But she got a whole mature side I ain't even realized she had. And it was all because Bella got to talk to little Edith Ann, who is one of the many characters of the one and only Lily Tomlin. I would love to be, like, a mentor to you, Edith Ann, if I ever can. Yes, that would be great. 
I think you're amazing. I would love that a hundred times. I remember watching Lily Tomlin's characters as a kid and knowing I want to do that. And to think now I've gotten to have a play date with her. That's what I love about this podcast. I get to invite people I adore from musicians and writers to scientists and comedians. So whoever you are and wherever you're from, I hope you'll join us for Playdate with Sarah Jones. You can hear more from Sarah and her characters by subscribing to Playdate with Sarah Jones wherever you get your podcasts. And that is really it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our interim executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is still Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director, Louis Mitchell. And our producers are Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders. And for a little while longer, our intern is Max Gibson. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks for listening. His beautiful angelic voice, you know, just calms you down. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, those seven words you couldn't say on broadcast TV and can't on radio. How a George Carlin comedy album raised serious issues about censorship. That's next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.